Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. We talk deferrals and the new clearing plus, research sustainability, and a big plan for widening participation. It's all coming up. Uh, I don't think we live in a world where you let your children do things. Uh, I I think uh, we've got to encourage them to take big decisions for themselves. I would be encouraging uh, my children, who have all been uh, to universities, six of them, actually six universities, uh, to grab uh, opportunities that were available now that weren't available before uh, I think uh, some of my kids Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, stuck at home like everybody else who doesn't need to get their eyesight checked. And as usual, we have three brilliant guests to row us gently across the peaceful koi ponds of higher education policy. In Chepstow, we have Jenny Shaw, Student Experience Director for Unite Students. Jenny, give us a moment of zen. Oh, well, my moment of zen is we found uh, a little walk through the woods that no one else seems to know about, which is... is you know, it's like gold dust because people just flock to every lovely walk there is in, in this area. So we're, we're keeping it secret and that's our quiet, peaceful moment of Zen. And in Maidenhead, we have David Sweeney, Executive Chair of Research England. David, your moment of Zen. Uh, my treat over the lockdown is watching all of the episodes of Borgen, the Danish political drama, which I missed first time round. And events happen in that programme that are surreal and similar to visits to Barnard Castle. Uh, it gives you a moment of complete alternate reality. And in a really small farm outside of Barnard Castle, it's David Kernahan. That's DK to you and me, Wonky's associate editor and correlations are DK, your moment of Zen, please. Um, well, I've been working on a lot of music, a lot of uh, kind of musical and recording projects with my uh, band. Um, I've also been arranging stuff for orchestra, which is something I've not done for about 20 years. It's been lovely getting back into that. When someone says they've been working on their music, I think of Ross from Friends with his keyboard. Boom, 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 <laughs> boom, boom. So let's dive right in. We're seeing increasing amounts of interest in uh, whether students are planning on showing up in September. And we're also learning more every day about the new Clearing Plus system. Jenny, what's going on? Well, I think we all want to know how many students are going to come to university this year. It does tend to focus the mind, doesn't it, around issues of financial viability. Um, and there's been polling on it. So London Economics have done some polling with Youthsight uh, and they've found that the vast majority, 86% of, uh, I think it's UK and EU students, will still come to university in September if things are normal. But there'll be a 17% drop off if there are still some restrictions in place. So in other words, if we've still got an active pandemic, and of course, that's something that none of us can control, uh, which is a, a little disempowering. Um, they've also found that uh, a quarter of students would consider switching their course during clearing. Um, and this this is something that, of course, does give students some control back a little bit nearer to the time. So you could see how attractive that would be. And students now have access to Clearing Plus from early July, which is a, a super sophisticated, personalised approach, uh, which uses an algorithm to help them find the most suitable and relevant 
course. Now, whether or not you think that's sinister probably depends on how old you are. Uh, and actually, if you're a student, uh, it, it's going to be the sort of technology I think that you probably understand quite well and navigate around uh, quite well. Um, but of course, it's all taking place in a context of, of huge uncertainty. And I think we shouldn't cling too hard to the stats at this stage. Attitudes are quite volatile because actually all of us are still adapting uh, to a situation and what might seem unacceptable to students right now might not do uh, in September. Um, certainly we're doing some polling next week about the health and safety and support measures that might be reassuring to students and their parents in uh, that decision to come back to university. Uh, and actually, DK, you've, you've done some uh, great work pointing out that actually the reason that people might choose a university uh, is, is quite nuanced. It, it's got a, a quite a big emotional component to it. And actually going to university at all is quite an emotionally loaded decision. Um, I, when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, it's probably somewhere between buying a house and getting married uh, in terms of that, that weight of life decision. But we do tend to default to this idea that it's a, it's a simple cost benefit analysis for students. And actually, there's some real dangers in baking that into our response and also into our survey questions. So uh, that's something that could lead us astray, I think. Mm, thanks, Jenny. D DK, tell us, what have we learned about Clearing Plus this week that we didn't know before? So just to um, kind of backtrack to the start of the story, we initially heard about Clearing Plus. It was released alongside uh, the uh, government support for um, universities back at the start of May and exactly the nun bailout. And it was, um, it was seemed to be pointed at an idea as, okay, we can help students get into the best courses. They don't have to go into terrible courses anymore because of their own lack of knowledge. It's, of course, it's not like that at all. Um, it is only for students that are in um, clearing, either by dint of choosing to be in clearing or by not meeting their grades. And the technology, effectively, the main thing it does is it will show you stuff that's a bit like the courses you've applied to or are looking at, but is uh, the entrance rates are linked to the grades that you've actually got, the stuff that you're actually playing with, rather than uh, the... the um, just letting you look at everything. Now, I actually think this is potentially dangerous. As we all know, during the clearing period, and especially, I think, during this year, the grades are negotiable. Uh, you can ring up a university and you can say, OK, I've not quite got your grades, but I've nearly got your grades. I would love to do your course. I'm a great student for the following reasons. And they might let you in. Um, exactly the same thing has happened to many, many people I know, and it continues to happen. This is why we have uh, clearing in a way. It is a second chance. And the idea that students are being steered only to ask about in clearing uh, courses where they haven't, they have definitely got the grade, that's actually kind of limiting. It's almost, it is uh, doing the opposite of uh, what it's been designed. Hmm. I mean, David, it seems like, I mean, there's obviously a lot of unknowns about what what applicants' behaviour is going to look like? I mean, would you, as looking at it now, would you would you be planning on on, on letting your letting your children go to university or letting your kids go if uh, if they were at uni age? Uh, I don't think we live in a world where you let your children do things. Uh, I I think uh, oh, we've got to encourage them to take big decisions for themselves. I would be encouraging uh, my children who have all been uh, to university, six of them actually, six universities, uh, to grab. Uh, opportunities that were available now that weren't available 
before. Uh, I think uh, some of my kids uh, did not so well in their first go at university, uh, but in uh, those cases, universities offered them uh, second goes, actually, uh, through through master's courses that have transformed their lives. Uh, I think that there are so many opportunities for people who are willing to grab them, uh, and this is a time uh, for looking for exactly that. So I, I think a scheme that narrows down uh, student choice, uh, potential student choice, is, is not so great as one which opens out new opportunities. I mean, it's fair to say it's not the intention, I think, behind the, the Clearing Plus system. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say this might be that might be one of the unintended consequences, but the intention isn't to narrow it, and um, we don't know. We don't know for sure what will, what will happen. I mean, Jenny, on the on the face of it, do you think that you know this will will help people get in more more people get into the right um, the right sort of courses, or also are you also worried about the kind of potential narrowing effect? I think the the fact is we just don't know, uh, and the the. F- one of the things about unintended consequences is that they are unintended and you don't actually get to find out what they are until after the fact. So uh, we're doing this uh, in, in quite a quite a strange year um, and and it is a bit of an experiment. So I, I just don't think, I, mean, I think there is a potential for it to narrow choices. I think there is the potential for um, bias unintentionally to, to creep into to the way it's done. Um, I think that there is the potential for some students to be disadvantaged by it. But, I, you know, obviously, it's, it has not been designed in that way. It's been designed to be as as, as good and as fair as possible. And um, I, I think one of the positives that, that I've read is actually the, the emphasis that was put on the user experience, which I think is often overlooked. But actually, the feedback from students was that they wanted a better user experience. They wanted it to be easier to navigate because that would be helpful to them. Uh, whether the algorithm delivers what they need right now, I just don't think we know. There is a, um, a provider angle to all this as well, because uh, providers that are offering courses can change settings in such a way that their courses can target particular students that they've been having trouble recruiting in the past. Um, so, I mean, ob- the, the obvious example that student that uh, providers w- would use this to target students that have got the right uh, grades, but they can also use it to target students that come from Paula Quintal uh, number one. Uh, so the people that are least likely to go to university. This, of course, is a requirement for many uh, providers in their access and participation planning with OFS to recruit more and more of these students. So they can actually use this scheme to uh, make sure that they are uh, course gets in front of the students from those particular disadvantaged groups that otherwise wouldn't be considering it. Uh, we don't really know, as everyone said really, we don't really know exactly how this is going to work in practice, but it is one to watch and I for one in next the back end of next uh, January, at which point we will probably still be in lockdown. Um, um, I will be looking very closely at the application data for evidence of where this might have had an impact. So I think that's really interesting, actually, if, if universities can set the parameters for contextual ad- admissions, because that's something that hasn't been done in that way before. It'd be interesting to see whether people do that and, and what the impact might be. And I mean, I'm also interested, I mean, this is perhaps it's not the, the, the conversation so much for today, but the like so many things, how um, how the, 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 this whole crisis will change long-term policy and, and also behaviours and expectations. And it seems to me that the government has made its mind up that PQA is the right way to go. Um, and I wonder if this this situation will kind of give them a kind of a, a hook 
to to hang that policy on. And I mean, David, you've been around the, these arguments for a lot, for a long time in different cycles, as uh, you know, as as, uh, as it's kind of fallen in and out of favour. Um, could, could you imagine us ending in a in a kind of PQA type system in the next couple of years? Well, yes, yes, I certainly could imagine that. I, I, I think it's a very tricky issue because you've got to look, look at it from the point of view of the applicants. And I think there are certainly some who are significantly disadvantaged by the, the way it's done now. Uh, there are also quite a lot, I think, who have more time to think and plan uh, in the current system. So I think there's no right or wrong. Uh, where I think we are, though, is that things that were considered unthinkable and impractical uh, are now worth thinking about and uh, although the disruption this year will will be immense uh, i think we will get through that dis- uh, disruption and things that were thought impractical will turn out to be possible so i think it just resets the decisions around pqa uh, and i think we can have a much uh, more informed discussion and lay aside some of the uh, the strong views we have about practicality that perhaps are not now justified. Mm. Well, from your, your lips to God's ears, I like the sound of a, a more informed conversation about PQA. Um, right, let's see who's been blocking for us this week. Hi, I'm Claire Taylor, working for Sums Consulting. It's a consultancy owned and run by universities. I've been working with university timetablers to understand the art of the possible for September 2020. We already know lectures are out, replaced by asynchronous online broadcasts available to students on demand. But what should universities do about small group teaching? I think there's two key questions that timetablers are, are asking, um, which will help them decide what to do about face-to-face teaching for September. One's about the rooms. How many rooms are still usable under social distancing rules? One university we spoke to estimated a reduction of 30 to 40%. And question two, what's the occupancy of those rooms likely to be? We think perhaps 15 to 25% of their full capacity. So what's this going to mean for face-to-face small group teaching? We're going to see multiple instances, double, triple teaching, much longer teaching days for academics. Or our senior leadership teams are going to have to make some difficult decisions about which cohorts to prioritise for face-to-face learning for September. Check out our longer blog on the Wonky site for more details on this. Right, Nesta's out with a new report uh, about the, the missing $4 billion. That sounds like a lot of money, David. What, what on earth is going on? Well, I, I think this report has been some time in the gestation. And as Tom and uh, Richard say, they've talked to a lot of people, and, and I am one of those, those people. I think it is a fantastic report with some great data attached uh, that opens out things, uh, provides, in fact, the informed basis for discussion that I was just uh, referring to on, on uh, PQA, pr- provides a chance to have a debate about where we're going to get to and what. Uh, I, I'm afraid I'm willing to call uh, the new normal. I think we have a system that has served us very, very well at delivering some very strong outcomes. I think probably we need a slightly broader set of outcomes. And certainly, uh, we need outcomes uh, that mean that, for example, UKRI can put into practice its mission as being a research and innovation agency for the whole country. Uh, We have had constant research concentration. Uh, There is a very strong investment in uh, parts of the country who have delivered on that investment. I think we want to provide an opportunity, uh, according to Forth and Jones, uh, to look at that opportunity being available right across the country. What were your key takeaways from from that uh, from the from the report and its recommendations? 
Uh, well, I, I think there's a lot of recommendations, some of which are practical and simple, uh, but nevertheless challenging. Uh, some of them aimed in uh, the direction of my organisation. and I'm not going to comment on those, but I do appreciate uh, the case uh, that's being made. Uh, I mean, I, I think the key take home is that research and development is at the heart of economic growth uh, across the whole country. That's, I think, what we believe and the government believes. Uh, but we have given undue attention to some parts of the country for a series of reasons that have been clearly set out. And now the take-home message is, uh, why should we not invest in research and development right across the country and demonstrate that the benefits that uh, follow uh, will available be available to all? And I mean, David, you're a member of the, the Research Sustainability Task Force, uh, and it's been, you know, there was a bit of a row about, uh, you know, who was on it and, and, you know, naming, naming the names. Um, but it does seem, it does seem like a fairly broad and sensible group. And, but, but I guess my question is, do you think that the government is taking seriously what you and other experts about research and innovation are, are bringing to it at this, at this point? Oh, I do, th- I do think the government's taking uh, seriously uh, inputs of, of all kinds. I, I think the discussions that are happening around how we handle the immediate situation because the government aspiration for research and development, which I've already described in the, the place context, uh, remains uh, articulated very strongly. And uh, I'm sure we'll look and see if it is articulated uh, strongly again. The government's got an aspiration. Uh, we've got to ensure that we have the research capacity and capability to deliver on that and indeed broaden it uh, so that it's available in more places. Uh, so really the task force is about how we do stuff now, uh, but also research sustainability is clearly an issue that has been brought into sharp focus by the shock the system has had. And uh, part of the agenda, therefore, is looking ahead, uh, again, being slightly trite to look at what the new normal might be and how we might get there. So Richard and Tom have produced a great set of proposals for uh, one element of the the new normal. I'm sure that others uh, will emerge and I'm sure the government wants to listen to all of those and develop uh, concrete plans to deliver. DK, on the kind of political side, it it feels like the research innovation side of what goes on in the landscape inside universities and, and, and around that ecosystem is the bit that the government is keen on protecting and 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 shoring up to a certain extent um it doesn't feel the same doesn't feel like there's the same attention to the rest of universities you know the the teaching and the learning and the and and the experience um why why do you think that is well well first of all i don't agree i just think i think the government is very concerned that uh, the ability to deliver high level skills and provide uh us uh, with a workforce that's right for the jobs of tomorrow is is very strong. I think actually the the view of universities goes way beyond uh, uh, the economic approach. Uh, at the heart of regeneration in huge parts of the country is uh, is culture, and our universities are major centres for that. So I think this is a balanced approach. However, uh, the government's always been very clearly involved in. In research, it's a very, very major funder, and we have uh, national plans. I think the government is not in is not dictating uh, how teaching is carried out. I think that's uh, very much a responsibility of the universities, and I think it's admirable 
that they're not getting in to some of the fine detail around that. And it's an opportunity for universities to take some new directions, as uh, we've been uh, talking about, uh, because they work with students and identify collectively uh, opportunities that are available to them. So I don't see it at all as the government not interested. I just think the nature of their interest is is different, and it rightly so. DK, t- tell us about the, um, uh, the Nestor Report's QR recommendations. Yeah, now this is the bit that I imagine raised most of the sector eyebrows this morning. A lot of it, um, a lot of what's in the report is, uh, we need to get a uh, better, uh, funding R&D in the regions. And that I think is largely uncontroversial. Uh, we've, we've been saying that for a long, long time. Uh, but I'm just going to read you the actual text of, well, it's um, recommendation nine. Block grant funding for research and knowledge exchange in universities should be regionally weighted to reflect current regional public underfunding of research and development. The long-standing explicit preference to London in the quality research funding formula, that's the QR funding we all know and love. Uh, thank you, David, for that funding. Uh, that should be removed. So this is a big, big shift. Uh, there's long been the expectation that, I mean, QR primarily pays for staff. It pays staff salaries and uh, those salaries cover staff living costs. Living costs are simply higher in London. And as much as we might like the idea of spending less in London and more elsewhere, the problem is for the spend we make in London, we'll be getting less act activity per pound of spend simply because it's more expensive to do pretty much anything in London. So there's a a lot of other stuff in there aimed at Ukraine, uh, which obviously we can't expect David Sweeney to talk about at this point. Uh, but there would be a high-level advisory uh, committee of the nations and reasons to look at the overall spread of project funding. And there'd be expansions to existing funds like the Strengths in Places. Uh, the other thing I spotted in this report, which I thought was interesting, was uh, 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 Figure 10 which is a lovely block diagram of all of the different players in the uh, the UK's R&D funding. Now, I looked at this and I was reminded back at the start of Joe Johnson's first period as universities minister, he talked a lot about a PowerPoint slide of doom, which showed an incredibly complicated system of things, which was quite hard to grasp exactly what was going on. Now, this diagram to me looks exactly like that kind of a slide. It's a complex system. And although I think that the government's instinct to make R&D work by devolving it regionally is probably the right one. Who is to say that in a few years, another minister will come along and will do with Joe Johnson, will look at a complicated picture and say, this is ridiculous, we haven't got any levers, we haven't got any controls, we can't do any national planning. So I kind of slightly fear that the seeds of this report's on uh, downfall are actually in the complexity of the systems that it is uh, proposing. Hmm, fascinating. I, th- I think, well, you know, stepping back, research and science is having a bit of a moment. Uh, I mean, it's clear that, you know, this is where the, fr- the front line of the fight against the pandemic is taking place. And it's taking place in, you know, university labs. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where largely, um, you know, we're going to find a, a way out of uh, uh, of this crisis, you would have thought. Jenny, do you, do you think that is starting to cut through with the public, or do you think we're still going to end up in a distrusting of experts place when it when the dust settles? Well, I'd like to hope that the the current trust in experts will be sustained, and I, I do think it's it's a moment not just to to get us out 
uh, of the current crisis, which will involve a huge amount of research, uh, science, but uh, actually to to build back better, which I think that there is still a will to do. So, you know, we want to avoid future pandemics. We want to avoid ad- adverse climate events in the future. Well, we're going to have to science our way out of this. There's a huge amount of research and innovation to be done and not just the science, but people-centred economic and social policy as well. So I think it's a great moment for UK and, and international research really to, to take that moment before everyone forgets what we've learned and what we've come to value through the current pandemic. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with that, but I, I would say it's not just about uh, elements of the research agenda in universities. This is an opportunity for them, albeit facing uh, plenty challenges, uh, to grab the broader role of contribution to their communities and regions beyond uh, just uh, research done in in labs. It, it's an opportunity. Uh, I think that there are some, some challenges. I, I appreciate David setting out what I will write in response to the report on, on QR uh, funding. Uh, yes, I always appreciate David's, uh, David's wisdom, actually. It's, it's, it's really, really helpful. What I would say, though, is that there are, as well as costs, additional costs from being in, in some parts of the country, there are also additional benefits from being in some parts of the country. And uh, I think we do need to look hard at the method by which we do our funding uh, to take account of how we will deliver the best outcomes across the country. Welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that takes sector data and drives it 200 miles up the A1 without stopping. The town of Barnard Castle in County Durham is a beautiful place and is noted in particular for easy access to opticians. But is there a higher education infrastructure that supports this local economic need? I've plotted the distance in miles as the crow flies to Barnard Castle from each UK higher education provider against the number of students studying ophthalmics in 2018-19 at each institution. Yes, but does it correlate? Uh, I would have thought that there was no correlation and that the uh, provision of optical uh, courses and ophthalmics was uh, not correlated with distance. I'm going to go with a weak correlation. Uh, I, I think there might well be. Surprisingly enough, there is no correlation. R squared is 0.048, though obviously I reserve the right to go back later on and edit that to make myself look smarter. Cardiff University has the greatest number of students studying ophthalmics at a distance of 219 miles to Barnard Castle. Data is taken from the 2018-19 HESA student dataset and from Google Maps. And where the data does not exist or is equal to zero, I have not plotted it. See you next time. The Russell Group has released a plan to offer opportunities disadvantaged and underrepresented students. A big plan for WP. DK, talk us through it. Now, every now and then, the Russell Group, which is the group of uh, which originally was the group of universities that had medical schools, but is now the group of universities that think that they offer something distinct and higher quality than others, shall we say. Um, it's released a plan to more consistently offer opportunities for disadvantaged and unrepresented students. Now, you might think um, that's the kind of thing that the Russell Group comes out with quite a lot. And you're right. Um, it is a problem that needs fixing. Um, and the approach in this report is that although members of the Russell Group need to make um, 
um, a commitment, as they say, to uh, delivering on their responsibility to diversify their campuses and support their students to reach their full potential, because, of course, otherwise they would not be doing that. Um, it's also calling on government to make changes in the way, in the opportunities at schooling and uh, other adult education to support students to the extent that more students might be able to benefit from the marvellous education that only the Russell, the, uh, Russell group can offer. <laughs> and and uh, so you might have picked up from that. I'm a little bit cynical about this report, uh, that there are elements of politics that if you look deep into it, it doesn't really commit Russell group members to make any hard changes in the way they teach or the, or the, or their admission policy, although we do get the standard warning that if you want Russell Group um, universities to take on uh, more students from disadvantaged backgrounds, they would have to, shock horror, lower their entrance grades. So um, a lot of the action is on the government. There's a new office for tackling inequality. Um, I don't like that name. I reckon you could call it something like the Office for Fair Access. I think that would be... Um, a much more pleasing title. And, um, yeah, so as you can probably tell, I'm not a massive fan of this, but it does point to work that uh, needs to be done. And it does once again underline the fact that um, a lot of a person's success in life is defined not by the university they go to, but by their background and the jobs their parents did. I mean, there's this question about, um, so that, yeah, there's just an office for tackling inequality or, you know, uh, uh, offer, offer mark too. I mean, what extent though is this actually a response to, um, the access and participation, um, agenda from, from the office of students and, and the, the changes that all universities are going to have to make when it comes to, to WP? I mean, I think the first thing to say is, I do admire the the target that Chris Millwood has set here because actually he's forced this debate um, and I'm sure that he knows that it's not within an individual university's gift to deliver on this or even a mission group, but it's something that needs to happen. Um, and, and I also think, and that, you know, this may be controversial, but I do think that um, the, the Russell group is right to say this is not something we can do on our own. Um, tackling inequality to this level does need a sustained political will, which is something that I don't think we've seen for, for quite some time. And while it is about tackling educational disadvantage from birth, it's about many more things. It's about poverty. It's about the causes of poverty, wealth inequality, health. It's about community, community organising. But I think it's also about listening to and respecting the values of the communities that you want to attract through your doors. It's about all these things. And uh, a university, a mission group, even the education sector um, can't do this on its own. So, um, you know, while while we may not be happy with the way it's worded, actually um, a whole government approach to, to tackling this with with many, many uh, partners from uh, across different sectors, I think is is correct. Doesn't let universities off the hook. Um, one thing it will do, and I think you've alluded to this already, is um, actually, if they do reach these goals, it will change Russell Group universities quite fundamentally, because they do, to you know, a greater or lesser extent, reflect the attitudes and values of the people who come through their doors at the moment. Um, and as part of that process of more representative access, I think the culture of these universities will change quite profoundly, and it will feel like a loss. 
Um, but of course, it is also a gain in so many ways. And it will help to break down the barriers between Russell Group universities and wider society, which is important if you want to carry on doing things like research and have a, a public will to do that. And I'd point out the Russell Group is not a homogenous uh, group, albeit they, are, uh, they, they share the banner. And I think uh, the approach taken by just, let's say, Newcastle, Leeds, uh, Liverpool is pretty different to the approach taken by Oxbridge. And I think there are many very, very good things happening in many Russell Group universities. I think it's great that they're uh, working together on this. I, I think it's it's not going to be a perfect answer and they do need help. But uh, surely it's a considerable step forward that we've got universities keen to take seriously their responsibility to all of our uh, people, uh, I think uh, I worked with Chris Millward for years. Uh, he, he has a very challenging job with a limited range of instruments available to him, uh, but a very down-to-earth and practical view of what is possible. Uh, he's, in my view, the right person to take this forward, and it's an area of the office for students uh, where I think they have the public mood right uh, they should be putting pressure on universities and I look forward to the Russell Group work being taken forward uh, to uh, better outcomes bluntly. My point is really you know a, a hugely challenging target like this forces you to reevaluate that you know you can't you can't get there by doing more of the same and and you can't get there on your own so um, the fact that this prompts a, a fundamental rethink of what is needed in order to create that equality I think is is helpful um, whether it will be possible to act on that uh, I don't know but I, I'm hopeful I'm hopeful it will because uh, the, the inequality that leads to uh, the inequalities in admissions, are systemic right across our society and and no one actor can can tackle them alone i think you're right it's, uh, this report is an encouraging like first uh, tentative step in a way to making those fundamental changes but we would need to see a lot more action from government and from these universities um each of them responsive to their own areas and their own local needs particularly that i think would um, need to take place if we're going to make this uh, fundamental change. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to David, Jenny, DK and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, Remain indoors. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.